famous pour over will is John Lennon. His will says, I give all my stuff to the John Lennon Trust. That's pretty much what the pour over will does. Anything that you had in your possession at your death goes into the trust. Hi, I'm Beth Anderson. I'm a family law attorney at Anderson Law PC. We do estate planning, probate, and family law issues like divorce and custody. I'm so excited to be here today to talk about wills, trusts, living wills, powers of attorney with Jacob Castonguay. He's one of the associates at Anderson Law PC, but also he really has distinguished himself as being excellent in both probate and estate planning. So we are gonna delve into it before I get to that. I just want to remind you that families change form, people pass away, people break up, but there's still families in each and every shape. And when those changes happen, we are your crossroads crew. We're your dissolution angels. And we're here to help you because it's not just breaking up, it's breaking upward. So without further ado, I'm going to let Jacob introduce himself. Hi, my name is Jacob Castonge. Like Beth said, I'm an attorney at Anderson Law PC. Um, I focus primarily on estate planning, but I also do family law as well. You know, just like in life, your passing needs a plan as well. Thanks, Beth. Well, we're so excited to have you here, and I think it's going to be fun. Um, it's somebody that I know very well and that um, we work together every day. So our question for today is, why do you need an estate plan? So why don't you just dive right into that, Jacob? Why does someone need an estate plan? Well, I got an equation for you. If you have one dollar, dollar plus two relatives, that equals the need for an estate plan. You need to get your final wishes out to your family so they don't fight over stuff and give them that peace of mind that they so desperately need in their time of need when you're gone. That's so true. And I really am kind of shocked and appalled as a probate attorney. I didn't realize how really decent, good people can get into it when it comes to probating a will. And the more precision and direction they get from those estate planning documents, it seems to be less controversy. They know what that decedent, the person who passed away, wants. And I think it helps tremendously. So I couldn't agree with you more. So we're going to talk about all these documents, wills, living wills powers of attorney and trusts. Everyone seems to know about the will, so we're going to start with that one, but what is a will, Jacob? A will is a document that you sign and notarize that pretty much lets your family know what your wishes are when you die, what you want to happen to your stuff. You can also cut people out of your will. That's one of my favorites. If you don't like somebody, you can cut them out. If you like somebody better than someone else, you can go ahead and give them more. And a will is a very important document that you have to keep safe because only your will is going to be valid when it goes to probate. Yeah, and I do see people sometimes they have different distributions to their children. What I see commonly is maybe an estranged relative or they might say, hey, I provided for this one of my three children more during their lifetime. They already received their share, so maybe their distribution is a little bit less. There is um, sometimes a mandata mandatory share, like a spousal share. There's certain things that you can't override, but for the most part, you have complete control over that document. Um, what are some of the steps that we do at Anderson Law to make sure it's a self-authenticating will so you don't have it contested in terms of witnesses and notary and all that? Well, first of all, in Colorado, a will is only valid if it's witnessed by two people. 
and it's got to be notarized as well. The witnesses shouldn't be anybody that's going to get anything out of your will. They should be random folks. And the witnesses are basically just there to attest to your capacity. Make sure that you're of sound mind when you sign your will. And the notary is usually us, the lawyers, who go ahead and craft the will for you. Yeah, as long as there's not a tax issue or something that is going to be contested about the will, the um, lawyer who's overseeing the will signing can actually notarize as well. There are some situations where they can't. But I have read a statistic that 80% of people who do their own estate planning documents never get them signed. And so it's really important to us that we provide both witnesses, that they're not interested parties, and we can just take care of that for you so you get it done. So that's the will. Um, and tell us a little bit about the personal representative. Who's that? They're the ones that are going to be in charge of giving away your stuff. They're the ones that are going to take your will to the probate court. They're the ones that are going to be assigned by the court in charge of all your items and your bank accounts and writing up a deed. They're pretty much kind of stepping into your shoes as you would if you wanted to give away your stuff like that. Yeah, some states call it an executor, and I noticed a lot of our clients will say executor, and they really just mean the personal representative. Some people don't realize it's just a nomination in the document, but the courts are almost always going to follow through with it unless there's a very strong reason why they wouldn't. So that's your personal representative. Some people call it the executor. And what are some qualities you look for in appointing someone to be your personal representative? And by the way, we're talking Colorado law because Jacob and I are licensed to practice in Colorado. Most people appoint their spouse as a personal representative. And then after that, it'd be someone else who's close to them like a child or a brother or someone that's really close, someone who really understands what you wanted in life and that when they read your will, they're not shocked that you gave it all away to a specific son or daughter, someone that knows what your wishes would have been, someone that's intimately intertwined with you throughout your life. Yeah, and doing probate, what are some qualities that as a lawyer who helps on probate, you would want that personal representative to have to help you get the job done? Well, someone that wants to do it, first of all, someone that has the time to take care of all this stuff, and someone that really understands what, you know, the deceased person's desires were, someone that, you know, like I was saying, kind of has that intimate knowledge so that they, someone that cares. Yeah, I think that's great. And I also personally, for me, I want them to be good at paperwork and hitting deadlines. They pick up the phone. They don't put their head in the sand or procrastinate. Um and that they can stand up to their siblings or whoever else might be an interested party. Um, and that's a role we play as counsel sometimes is just, oh my gosh, I'm probating my parents will and now this sibling is coming down on me or more likely often the spouse of the sibling is when do I get my money and we can take those calls and protect a personal representative um, when they have people coming down on them. But yeah, it's usually pretty easy to find that person. So basically that's your will. In ours, we might talk about what you want for your funeral or maybe not a funeral and some of the basics and we'll get to trust later, but we might include a very simple residuary or testamentary trust. So that's your will. So the next document, the living will. What's the difference between a living will and a will? Well, the living will, the whole idea there is it's kind of your end of life decisions. 
Your living will really only kicks in, well, ours really only kicks in under two circumstances. If you're under a terminal condition or you fall into a vegetative state. And what it basically says is if you fall into one of those two conditions that, you know, this is what you'd like to happen. You want to be hooked up to machines or you don't. And you can even pick some kind of middle ground where you're hooked up to machines for a certain amount of time. You're kind of making the most difficult decision for yourself so other people don't have to do it for you. That's one of my favorite documents, actually. When I was younger, there was a case called um, Schiavo, or I think her name was Terry Schiavo, out of Florida. And there was a dispute between her husband and her parents about whether she should linger and what kind of interventions were done. And it just was a wake-up call to a lot of people, hey, I want to have a voice in that. And I don't know what her actual intentions were, but I do know that if she had a living will, we would understand what she wanted. And so I've noticed a lot of people in healthcare come to us for those documents. And here they are, they work at hospitals. And by the way, a lot of hospitals and medical providers have their own documents that they hand people when they check them in. And kind of, they, in my opinion, they may um, just kind of rush those through and get those signed as part of admission. And that's a little different than taking your time and having no rushing involved and making real conscious choices about that end of life document. And ours is very legally enforceable. There are other things, like I think they're called either the seven wishes or different things. And those are okay, but I want a legal document that will be upheld in court if it comes down to it that's fully enforceable. There's also, um, sometimes they're called advanced medical directives, and there's one called a MOST, M-O-S-T document that a doctor can sign off on. Every once in a while, we'll do it that way. But I'm really pleased with our form, and it's based on what the legislature of Colorado thought we should have. But it means a lot to me because I think that's my end-of-life autonomy. And I know for me, I just don't want to be in certain situations, and I don't want that to be forced on my family. So that's your living will. It's pretty straightforward. The next one is the medical power of attorney. That idea behind those documents your powers of attorney is you're still alive but for some reason or another you just can't make decisions for yourself so you appoint an agent to make decisions for you and your medical power of attorney gives your agent the power to tell your doctor what your agent thinks your wishes would be in a certain situation like if you would want a surgery or if you wouldn't want a surgery or they can go pick up medications for you and get prescriptions filled they can pretty much step in your shoes and take care of all your medical needs. Have you found, Jacob, that most people want that to be in effective immediately? Or do you find most people want their medical power of attorney to require a doctor's note? Did you really see any trends in that? Well, with the medical power of attorney, I don't know if I worry about that so much for the medical one because, you know, the doctor's probably going to know if you can communicate with them or not. And so they'll just look to your agent for when you can't make those decisions. Because, you know, the doctor's the one that's going to be making all these recommendations. And if you're not there mentally to make an informed decision on what they recommend, they're going to need someone there to do it for you. So they kind of provide their own note, I feel, for the medical one. 
I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. They're usually, at least my experiences, clients usually want that document to be effective immediately because the truth of the matter is, I the way I explain it sometimes is if you're coming in and you're like, no, don't amputate, like you're agent for medical power of attorney is not going to be able to override you if you're cogent, if you're on top of what you're asking, if you have the capacity. It's just they can't override you and you're going to be there. So um, it probably should be effective immediately because you're being rushed in. And if you have a voice, they have to listen to you. So, yeah, Yeah. I totally agree with you. Whereas the financial power of attorney, what's we do two documents at our firm and they're both durable. They sustain past one event. But what's the difference between a medical power of attorney document and a financial power of attorney document? Well, the financial one appoints an agent in charge of making, you know, financial decisions for you. Like they can go to the bank and take out all your money. They can write checks. They can write deeds. They can go collect money for you. They can be your debt collector if you, you know, rent out houses and stuff like that. They can pretty much handle all your finances for you in the event that you can't do it for yourself. And with that document, I've noticed most people want those to be effective only upon an incapacity. Like they only want people to be able to make those decisions for them in the event of an incapacity. So sometimes our documents requires a doctor's note. You know, they take that doctor's note and the financial power of attorney to the bank before they can go ahead and start dealing with your bank accounts and stuff like that. Yeah, it can be useful to have it effective immediately. Usually for someone, maybe they're more elderly and they have a child helping them, but For the most part, people don't want that. They don't want their agent for financial power of attorney to be able to just run to the bank and start withdrawing things and making changes. I definitely remember, I never want to talk about a specific case here, by the way, because I don't want any of our clients to be, wow, she's talking about me. So I will always speak in a composite of multiple cases. There's no one's getting singled out here. But I definitely remember on more than one occasion where people are divorcing and that spouse used a financial power of attorney to make some transfers, we shall say. I hadn't drafted the documents because I won't do a divorce if I drafted the estate planning documents. Um, It's just my choice not to do that. Um, but I've seen that happen. So I think it is a good idea to have that doctor's note or some sort of lack of capacity in most situations so that those financial transactions can't be made. And in terms of the powers of attorney, we talked about um, someone who's intimately involved, who knows the person, who's able to help, who's good at paperwork. What about for the agents for medical and financial power of attorney? What kind of people are good candidates for those appointments? Well, for the medical one, it's usually someone that has more of a, you know, connection with you that's kind of emotional because you're dealing with your health and your body. And that requires kind of more of a knowledge of maybe even your religious beliefs at some point. Whereas your medical one, you know, if someone's real good with money and handling finances, like the accountant of the family, they'd be a great pick for your financial power of attorney. But a medical one, I really think it needs to be someone that's pretty close to you, like a spouse or a child. 
Yeah, and I've noticed with some of the clients, they may have someone in their family who is in the medical field. They may have someone in their family who's in the financial field. And so it doesn't have to be the same person. Like you said, a lot of times it's my spouse is my go-to, but then we have successors. And so you might say, okay, my spouse is my go-to to be my agent, but if they can't do it, then my backup is this person and that person. And a lot of the financial appointments, they want the same people for all of those. And the medical sometimes a little bit different. Yeah. Um, some, I used to say you'd want them nearby, especially for medical, so they can look, go to the hospital or see how you're doing. But now we can do so many things on Zoom or remotely. It may be less important. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then there are other appointments in those documents, particularly for us. We have it in the um, financial power of attorney. We might have a conservator and a guardian appointed. Can you talk a little bit about those appointments? Well, a conservator and a guardian are, you know, they're pretty much the same thing as your power of attorney, but they're appointed by the court and they're a lot harder to kick off per se. Like with your power of attorney, you can revoke it. With a conservator, you can't necessarily revoke it. So it's more of a permanent appointment. And a conservator is akin to your financial power of attorney and a guardian is akin to your medical power of attorney. And when I'm explaining it to clients, I usually bring up the whole Britney Spears thing. Because in our documents, we just nominate who you would pick to be your conservator and guardian. So if someone like Britney Spears' dad comes along and wants to become your conservator, you know, there'd be evidence that he's not the right person if his name wasn't on your financial power of attorney as that appointment. Exactly. And um, guardian is more life choices, conservator, financial choices. Again, it's just a nomination. So it's... Maybe I'm getting a little in the weeds here, but when you do a power of attorney, that agent upon execution of the document, when you sign it, boom, they're it. You may need a doctor's note for them to do stuff, but it's effective. Whereas with conservator and guardian, it's a nomination and then you go to court, but having done those hearings, the nomination in the document by statute is given high regard yeah so they're really gonna look seriously into what you wanted and something people don't always realize is they'll tailor it to what that person needs so maybe someone needs a lot of help in one area and less in another and the courts are loath to take away a person's autonomy so they'll try to narrowly tailor it to what is actually needed especially if the person doesn't agree that they need a guardian so those are the main things. Is there anything else you wanted to add about will and powers of attorney? Well, I do know that your living will and your medical power of attorney kind of go hand in hand. And you really have to make a tough choice sometimes to decide which of those documents can be more powerful than the other. Because let's say you have your agent appointed and they're making medical decisions for you. And then while they're doing all that, you fall into this vegetative state. So now your living will kicks in. And if your living will, you initialed the part that says, I do not want to be hooked up to any machines at all. I want to go naturally. But your agent who's appointed and acting for your agent says, I want to keep them hooked up forever. Let's keep them going like Einstein's brain. We can make one of those documents more powerful. We can say, in the event I have an agent appointed and my living will kicks in, I want my living will to be able to override my agent's decisions. Or like Beth was saying, if you picked a nurse for your 
medical power of attorney. If you have strict confidence that they'll be able to make a better decision than you would in that situation, you can reverse it and you can say, my power of attorney, they can override my decisions in my living will in the event that that happens. And that's usually kind of a tough decision for people to make. And a lot of people kind of flip-flop back and forth on it, which is okay. Yeah, that's the one area for sure where I have not seen a trend one way or another. It seems like half the people want one and half the people want another. And it's not an election. It's not a popularity contest just because our few clients, I mean, we have a lot, but certainly not a reflection of the entire populace. Just because they trend away doesn't mean that's the right choice for you. You probably should talk to your attorney about your specific situation. But I've seen it really pretty divided. And talk to the people you want to be your agents too. You know, the person that's your agent might not want to make that decision. Or the person that's your agent might have real strong feelings about that kind of stuff. So that's a good conversation to have with them as well. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I love that. So those are the big four. The powers of attorney, the living will, and the last will and testament. And so now we have plenty of time to talk about trusts and trusts are complicated. I'm going to start off with my very strong bias and maybe it's just something that is an issue of ethics for me and I hope I'm not overdoing it, but this is not time for your attorney or even non-attorneys who do estate planning to supersize you and upsell you and try to say you absolutely need to trust no matter what. And that's because probate in Colorado, at least, is fairly straightforward. A trust may actually be more work and more cost than probate itself in Colorado. And that's a common misconception because other states probate such a nightmare that it's almost everyone has a trust. In Colorado, that's not necessarily true. I mean, what's your experience with that in terms of probate and trusts, Jacob? Well, in Colorado, if someone wants a trust that we put together for them now, something that's actually put together now that they can start putting stuff into, I really only see a few reasons why someone would want that. If they have property in another state, because if they have property in another state, they're going to have to open up probate in that state as well. So you can put all your property in the trust and avoid that. Or if people have millions and millions of dollars and they don't want to pay that excessive estate tax, they can put their extra stuff into a trust. Another good reason to have a trust is if you have a blended family. Because a lot of times people in wills, they leave everything to their spouse. Then their spouse's will will take care of it after that. But if you have kids from another family, they'll end up getting cut out. So you can put stuff into the trust and the trust can distribute everything as you would see fit. Yeah, there are quite a few reasons and it's really a case by case basis, but it's not an assumption that everyone needs a trust. And I think we have plenty of time to talk about different trusts. One that we do a lot and it's very affordable and it's very easy is a trust that is sometimes called a springing trust because it springs into efficacy, it starts to operate when you die. And it's called by a bunch of names. It could be called a grandparent's trust if it's for grandkids, or a minor's trust if it's for a minor child, or a residuary trust, because it's taking care of the residuary of everything you're leaving your family after you pay taxes and bills, etc. 
um, or a testamentary trust. It has all these names. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that kind of trust, Jacob? I usually call it a testamentary trust, and we usually put it in people's wills for the main purpose of if someone's going to inherit something and that someone's under 18, a lot of times the court won't give that person that inheritance. Like if it's a house, the court's not going to give a house to a 16-year-old. So we set up this trust in your will, and it says, when I pass, if anybody inherits through this will, and they're under, and we just put 25 as a default, because that seems to be a good age when most people are mature enough to handle certain kinds of gifts. So we say, if someone inherits and they're under 25, then we're going to put their inheritance into this trust. And then when they turn 25, then they can take it out of the trust and the trust closes. So that's the main reason we put together a testamentary trust. If you're giving something to grandkids, so that's why we call it sometimes that grandkids trust like Beth was saying. And that trust is pretty simple. It pretty much says we'll put stuff into trust and then we appoint a trustee who's in charge of maintaining the items in the trust. And then they can distribute money out of the trust to the beneficiary before they're 25 if, say, the beneficiary really needs it. Like they're heading off to college, they don't have any money, or their car broke down, or maybe they're getting married young and they need to get enough money to pay for that wedding. Stuff like that. Yeah, we talk about a reasonably priced car, or education, or moving for a job because... I've met with multiple people who inherited a substantial sum of money when they were maybe 21 and they blew it really quickly. The statistics are even for someone more mature, it's found money, so it's usually gone in three years, even for someone who is older. So for a young person, they might have a temptation to squander that money. So it's for the basics. It's not for the 420 industry to eat it all up in a couple of years or they're throwing it all into crypto or something that might be a risky investment, that they really have some guidance from this trustee. And remember, if you're leaving everything to your spouse, then they're not going to be the trustee because they're going to inherit it initially. And sometimes this secondary inheritance for the minor child is only if your spouse doesn't survive you. But blended families, that's a great place for it. For example, I have a blended family. And so you may want to, my kids are grown, so it's not really an issue. But for very young children, you might say, you know, this is my money that I built up over a lifetime. This is my legacy and not so much for myself as an example, I'm good, but for some of the people that I know, maybe we handled their divorce, they may not want their ex, their ex-spouse, their ex-boyfriend or girlfriend to be in charge of everything they built up over a lifetime and how to spend it on behalf of this child. In fact, that might actually be their nightmare. And so that's where that trust really is so helpful to say, you know what, this is mine and I'd rather have my sister overseeing it or my cousin or my brother or my parent, not my ex and their new spouse who seems to boss them around, sometimes not in any particular situation, but it's just something to think about. And we've we've seen that happen multiple times. So that's one of the first trusts, a testamentary trust. There's also something called a revocable living trust. So tell us a little bit about that one. That's a trust that doesn't spring into action at your death. It's a trust that you create 
right now that you can start putting assets into. Like if you want your house into that trust, you'd write a deed from yourself to the trust. And now your house is in the trust. And now your trustees in charge of going ahead and taking care of all that stuff. I kind of learned recently a good way to describe a trust is like an empty Kleenex box. And the stuff that goes into the trust is your Kleenex. And the settler, the one who creates the trust or the one that made the Kleenex box, they put all the Kleenex in there. And if the house is in there, let's say you're renting the house and the house creates income, that's more Kleenex you can put into the trust, into your box. And as time goes on, you can take money out of the trust. You can take Kleenexes out of the Kleenex box and spread it around as you see fit. And then when the trust is all done, you can take all the Kleenex out and throw away the box and you're done with it. It's almost like a bank kind of sort of that just holds things for you. And whatever income you create off that, that can go to beneficiaries. And then when the trust is closed, all the assets that were making money in the trust, that can be given away as well. There are a lot of legwork because once the trust is set up, you got to go out and start putting stuff into the trust. If it has a title, it's easy. You can put a car into your trust. You can put a house into your trust. But your stamp collection is kind of hard to get into the trust. You have to kind of just let people know or write on the box that holds your stamp collection that this is held into the trust. Yeah, it's um, a lot of work to fund the trust. And if you don't put something into the trust, so say, and I've had this happen multiple times, someone has a trust and then they never deed the house into the trust. Um, what happens and maybe a good time to talk about the pour over will that always goes with the trust. Yeah, the most famous pour over will is John Lennon. His will says, I give all my stuff to the John Lennon trust. That's pretty much what the pour over will does. Anything that you had in your possession at your death goes into the trust. And then the trust carries on in its terms regulate what's going to happen to your stuff after that. So our trusts come with a pour over will as well to make sure that everything gets into the trust eventually in one way or another. I had a family issue where my grandfather passed and his house was supposed to be put into trust so my uncle could live there. Well, no one ever put it into trust. So the house has been in my grandfather's name all this time. So then when my uncle passed, we had a hard time dealing with the house because we had to reopen probate to get the house sold. But if the house was put into trust like it was supposed to be, it could have been sold much easier because the trustee just could have sold it straight out of the trust. So the most important part about the trust is to get stuff in there. Yeah, and we will help you. That's one of the things that we offer up. Now, I'm not going to chase you for the rest of your life, and Jacob's not going to be following you around for 20 years to get you to fund your trust, but for a year or so, you can just call us and we'll talk about like, hey, here's how you convey property into your trust, because it does mean a lot to me, and I really get agitated when they don't fund their trust, because I, hey, we put all this time and effort into these documents, do your part, I really want you to make the best use of them, so we are here to help you, we give you a document that tells you how to fund the trust, we'll take your phone calls, how to put property in the trust, we'll walk you through, but then ultimately it's up to you, but if you don't get to it, the pour over will, will pour it into your trust. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious, did Julian Lennon inherit anything or did it all go to Sean and Yoko Lennon or do you not know the I answer? do not know. His trust is not public knowledge. Okay. You can only see his will online. 
That's yeah, that's interesting because I've heard Julian Lennon grouse about that maybe he didn't sometimes get the treatment from his dad that yeah. he wanted, and I never really know the details. I'm sure Yoko details. helped him out. Yeah, I, I have know. no idea. You can see his will online, but you can't see the trust. That's interesting, and that's another. Um, speaking of famous people in the music industry, I know Prince. I or at least I'm told, died without a will, and mm. it's just caused a lot of litigation. What are some other bad things that happen when someone passes away and they don't have an estate plan? We won't give a specific example from our clients, but do you have any like composite information about, like that was compelling about your grandfather. That's sad, I didn't know that, but do you have any other kind of horror stories that are a composite of things that can go sideways? One thing that comes to mind is if you have that blended family, you know, your father remarries and then when your father passes, everything might end up going to the spouse. And then you might not even know this person very well, but she could inherit everything and you might not get any of it. Without a will to really regulate that stuff, it can be cause a lot of problems. There's this thing in Colorado called the elective share where a spouse can elect half of the estate of the deceased person but necessarily doesn't correlate correlate <laughs> to a child yeah. doing the same thing. Like a child can't really take that elective share as easily as a spouse can. Yeah, so. they have, I think they have some, they do have some rights as Jacob They do knows. have some rights, but they're yeah. harder. Yeah, it's so true. And then I've heard so many horror stories. That's probably one of the number one grudges is, ugh. My mom or my dad died and their spouse, my step-parent got everything, got everything and then they shut me out. And even with the spousal share, the elective share, it involves a court process. And who wants to go down that path? Yeah. That's just terrible as well to get into litigation. So, yeah, that's definitely a negative um, or just not knowing what they wanted. Yeah. That can cause a lot of controversy, too. Um and I have to say over the years, people come to us for two reasons primarily. One is, oh, my parents passed away and they had such a great will and I want to duplicate it. Or my parents passed away and it was such a nightmare. I don't want to duplicate it and yeah. I want to take care. And so to me, it's almost night and day about a good estate plan. You don't want that legacy that you built up over a lifetime to tear your family apart and cause more harm than good. And yeah. I've seen that happen over and over again. So that excellent estate plan holds the family together and engenders love and affection. And the lack of a good estate plan can really tear a family apart. Yeah. I'm from farm country in South Dakota. That's where I was born and grew up for the most part. And as a child, even, I would hear, oh, this person isn't talking to that person because of the farm. The brother got the farm and they won't talk to each other. And I find that um, we kind of came from a pioneer culture so people can be stubborn. And so they may hold that grudge for a lifetime. And so that's why it's dear to my heart to do estate planning. It's not the most profitable part of our practice, but I do think it helps families and and it's your money. You built it up. You should have a say in how it's used. If you don't have an estate plan, you won't. How about the um, other documents like the living will and the powers of attorney? Do you have any other things that can go wrong if you don't have those? Well, the powers of attorney are very important because 
a lot of people wait till it's too late because to sign those things, you have to have the capacity to do so. And so you might be in an accident and end up in the hospital and you can't communicate with your doctor. Now your doctor's just going to have to make all these decisions on his own because you never put that power of attorney in play. So it's really important to get it in place before anything bad happens or else they're just useless. Yeah, that's so frustrating. And you can kind of be in that gray area where, okay, do they have the capacity to do these documents? Or on the other hand, are they maybe not so incapacitated so you can't get them the guardian and conservator and it just goes back and forth and people fight over it? Yep. Yeah, that's a real frustration for sure. And um, you always hate to see that situation. So those are the main documents and the main trusts. There's also something called an irrevocable trust. Tell us a little bit about those, like a Medicaid trust or... Those are basically trusts where you put stuff in there so you don't have control of it anymore at all. With the other trust, the revocable trust, you still have control over it. You can still allocate how income is spent. You can still change the trust, for example, and change the beneficiaries when the trust is terminated. But the irrevocable, you're pretty much putting it in a trust as if you're just kind of giving it away. And these are good for Medicaid because a lot of times Medicaid will count your house as an asset. And you need to put that house into this irrevocable trust to show that you don't really own that house anymore. There's ways you can craft it where you can still earn some income off the house. And the revocable trust is pretty much there to protect assets for the future. You're giving them away pretty much, but they're going to be held in there for future beneficiaries or distributions. And Medicaid gets really, really tricky. Those have to be set up before you're 65. And even if you do put it in a trust after 65, there's a five-year look back. And then the house might not be counted as an asset if you're living there. And if you aren't living there, if you might move back there, they might not count it as an asset. It gets really complicated. But a lot of times those trusts are kind of to give away stuff so that you don't have to deal with it, probably for tax reasons as well. So I did a little research on Google. The increased gift and estate tax exemption amounts for 2023 are 12.92 million for 2023 per person and 25.84 million per married couple. But in any event, I mean, if you're in those millions, you definitely want to talk to an attorney and nobody that I know wants to pay 40% estate and gift tax. And so you want to come up with some really clever estate planning so that you can have the benefit of it. Some people call it a spendthrift trust. Um, I mean, Medicaid, Trusts are one animal. They're very precise, and it takes a lot of work and planning to do those. A spendthrift trust um, is not what it sounds like unless you know the term spendthrift. It's for the nicer things in life. Like I originally, when I was younger, thought spending and thrifty. So it's for the <laughs> basics. No, no, not at all. A spendthrift is for the nicer things in life. So it may say you can't use it for your housing, and you can't use it for your medical, or you can't use it for the main things in life but you can use it for a haircut or a trip or the nicer things in life. And it was a way for wealthy people to basically impoverish themselves yeah. and use what money they do have for the nicer things. And so the law abhors a bankruptcy or impoverishing yourself. So you have to be perfect on the drafting and the details or they can pierce through it and get their hands on that. So that is something 
never do without a lawyer in my opinion and my advice is do not be messing with things like that without a lawyer yeah um maybe a living will or powers of attorney there are some situations where those might not be the end of the world but i will always say do not be messing with doing your own will and your own your own trust because i've seen them go sideways so many times when people go on to those software formats and try to write them and they seem like they always get something wrong yeah so i am not an advocate for that i love people to be able to do what they can on their own but uh, certainly not an irrevocable trust and if you have that kind of money you shouldn't have a balking at having it done i always think it's intriguing i've had so many clients want to do a workaround and balk at the price of a revocable living trust and they would never blink an eye at having that same price for closing on a house. Their closing fees are much higher usually, and they don't think twice about it, their insurance or whatever they need. But this is such a huge asset and you want to protect it. And so it's really intriguing to me that people don't want to pay that amount for a revocable living trust. And it can make your life a lot easier where you're just transitioning things from you to your spouse to your children. And it's all titled and you don't have to go through probate and it's private, the courts won't see it. There's a lot of reasons why people like it. Um, but I, again, it's not required in Colorado as much as some other states perhaps just because our probate is more straightforward. Can you talk about probate versus non-probate assets? So non-probate assets are anything that has a beneficiary on it, like a life insurance policy or a 401k. Those are not considered probate assets because they have like a contract that's already in place as to what happens to those funds when you pass. So for example, your 401k's beneficiary, when you pass, they're gonna call up the 401k and get the money. Whereas a probate asset has to go through probate for distribution. So your house, that's a probate asset unless it's in trust. Or you can skip probate by putting certain things in joint tenancy with rights of survivorship. Like your house, if your house is in you and your wife's name in joint tenancy with rights of survivorship, that means the first one to pass, the second person automatically owns the house and it can skip probate that way. And you have to open probate if you own property. And if you don't own property, you still have to open probate if you have assets over $75,000. Just probate assets though, those assets aren't gonna include anything with a beneficiary on it. Yeah, and that reminds me, it's kind of off topic, but one of the things about, we talked about spousal share, elective share, that's from the amplified estate. So it's not like if you die and say your spouse is a multimillionaire, they're not gonna get half of what you have. You look at what they own and what you own and like the whole enchilada, and then yeah. you figure out their share and how long you were married. It's really complicated, It's a big actually. complicated math yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. So now is time since we talked about all these documents and what can go wrong if you don't have them and those are actually really serious consequences something less serious is that jacob's going to tell the lawyer joke of the day lawyer joke of the day what's the difference between a vacuum cleaner and a lawyer riding a motorcycle i do not know what is it the vacuum cleaner has the dirt bag on the inside Uh, (laughs) That's always a good one. (laughs) 
So thanks for the joke of the day. And it's always a lawyer joke and they're not very hard to find. And that reminds me of our motto. If you hate attorneys, you haven't hired us yet. So hopefully we're the exception to that. Certainly Jacob is in no way, shape or form a dirtbag. And it's just impressive to me how accomplished he is with the knowledge of estate planning and just having seen the growth in that area. You came into the firm knowing a lot and now you're just really what do you say rocking it killing it when it comes to the um, estate planning so it's such an asset to our firm and our clients thanks Beth you're a great teacher awesome sauce so the next thing is question of the day and the question of the day is related to the topic that I'm predicting for our next podcasts and so our next podcast I'm hoping will feature our youth of divorce app it's a progressive web app and the website is youthofdivorce.com it's all made by students but my question for you jacob is what piece of advice do you have regarding the children of a divorcing couple if you're talking to a divorcing parent what piece of advice do you have for them think about the best interests of your children keep that in mind and keep that in front of all your decisions going through the divorce what's going to be best for your kids yeah, it's what the court requires. It literally says best interest of the child. And you can even look it up online, Colorado Revised Statute 1410-124. It lists all the factors and um, it has some shocking things like you have to foster a loving relationship with the child yep. and the other parent. And they even consider how far away you live from each other. And ability to put the child's needs ahead of your own. Yep. And I've had multiple clients like, why do I have to make... I? I don't want the kids to love them. Why do I have to do that? And I'll just explain, well, it's for these reasons. I understand your concerns because sometimes parents are abusive or dangerous. And so you can talk about your concerns, but how do you foster that relationship in a healthy way? You know, with good boundaries that protect the children. And for me also, just to keep the kids out of the middle. And we have other podcasts on that. But yeah, it's 100% important. And that's why we created at our own expense a progressive web app to help kids get safe access to information that is not interactive and not harmful so they can inform themselves in a safe way and not get caught with one parent trying to lobby them this way or that and the other parent maybe going the other way. So that's what's coming up. And so in closing, I'm just going to say again that breaking up, whether it's by a death or a divorce or a breakup, you're not just breaking up, you're breaking upward. All of our contact information will be in the show notes, but if you're just listening, you can take a note that my personal cell phone, I give it out all the time. It's 303-808-4794. And our website is Beth, B-E-T-H, Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, JD for jurisdoctorate.com. And you can find out a ton of information. You can look at Jacob's handsome picture and all the information about Jacob. Watch him on video, connect, give him a call to do your estate planning. And is there anything you want to add to that, Jacob? Nope. I have a cell phone number as well 720 280 8805. So you're either brave or foolhardy like me that I give that out. I've had good consequences. I have multiple lines. That's smart. And then also the office phone number is 
922-3880. And um, my email is bath at andersonlawpc.com. Again, E for excellent and Jacob at andersonlawpc.com. You can reach out to either of us and we'd be happy to give you a free consult, get you in the right direction. We will even look at your estate planning documents, no charge and let you know if you need a new one. And I'm here to tell you, dozens of people have taken me up on that and did not need new estate planning documents. But hey, karma, it comes back in another way, I'm sure of it. So yet again, signing off for Anderson Law PC. And you're not just breaking up, hopefully you're breaking upward. <laughs>